When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Bob Spitz shows Led Zeppelin as the iconoclasts they were, grinding the self-consciousness of rock and roll in the 70s into submission without a backward glance. Those are the words of Ann Wilson of Heart, and Bob is the award-winning author of the biography's Deary, The Remarkable Life of Julia Child, and The Beatles. Both were New York Times bestsellers, He's also written seven other nonfiction books as well as a screenplay. And he's my guest on this edition of The Literary Life. I want to welcome you, Bob, to The Literary Life. Your new book, Led Zeppelin, the biography, brought me great joy. And I think it gave me lots of chills for a kind of a, a life that I led so many years ago. And it brought me right back. So the very first question I have is, uh, as a biographer who's done so many different biographies, people like Ronald Reagan, Julia Child, The Beatles, Dylan, why Led Zeppelin and why now? Yeah, it was really an interesting way that it came about. My uh, publisher called me while I was working on something else and said, I'd really love for you to write a book that's been at the top of my list for the last 20 years. And he said, it's the group that has sold more records than anyone but the Beatles. And he made me guess. So, you know, I knew the Stones. No, the Who. Uh, could it be Elvis? And I thought, no, not Elvis. And then I thought, oh, God, he wants me to write about ABBA. <laughs> I thought, no, I can't do that. And he said, no, it's Led Zeppelin. And my heart kind of stopped because I have 20,000 vinyl albums and I don't have a single Led Zeppelin album. Is that true? Wow. Yes, it is true. I swear. And, uh, you know, I, during the seventies, I was on the road with Bruce Springsteen and Elton John. Uh, we just didn't cross the same paths. The, the, that music didn't, you know, head into my orbit. And so, you know, I really had to stop and think about this. And then I thought, you know, I'm the perfect guy to write this book. I am an empty vessel and I'm going to let them fill me up. I'm not a fanboy. You know, I don't know much about their music. I had five years. I was going to learn everything I could about this band, starting at the beginning and going through everything. And, and it worked out pretty well, I think. <laughs> worked out really well. Thanks. So tell me about, tell me about your process then. How did you go from, how did you fill up that empty vessel? Well, you know, first of all, in all my books, I believe you can't know who anybody is until you know where they came from. So I headed to Epson where Jimmy was uh, born and uh, raised and uh, up to the Midlands where uh, Bonzo and, and Robert came from and, and really tried to get a sense of not just their backgrounds, but what influenced them, where their music influences came from. And with Jimmy in particular, 
It was fascinating. I mean, you know, this is a guy who grew up in a little town called Epsom. Want to know who else grew up there? Jeff Beck, Eric Clapton, Glenn Johns. These guys all lived within a half a mile of each other. There was something in the water there. Um, and, and so, you know, it, 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 I was intrigued from this, the get-go. And then I started to listen to their music. And it, it was like, if someone said, you know, Bob, did you like Hamlet? Well, guess what? There are 16 other plays and all these sonnets, <laughs> you know, and there it was right in front of me. All of that Led Zeppelin catalog to just inhale and, and, and learn from. Was there, you know, in that little town in England, was there an amazing blue show on the radio or something? No, there wasn't. What is it that they all... They all were steeped in the same kind of blues music. You know, it, it was the post-war, post-World War II. And the, like Jimmy went to school with all Americans. Uh, so he, he played baseball in school as opposed to uh, soccer or rugby. And, and so the Americans had blues albums. They had rhythm and blues albums. The, the guys from the army uh, who, who remained there, who had kids in school. And, and that's where it came from, all these young guys. And I talked to all of the people who were in the Yardbirds and my buddy Graham Nash, of course, who was in the Hollies. And that whole blues influence really structured guys like Jimmy Page and, and it's the underpinnings of all of Led Zeppelin. And so I, I got a chance to really listen to that and to talk to everybody who was involved um, in that electric blues post-war thing and, and, and really learned it from, from there. Started my education very early on. My understanding is you didn't speak to the, the members of the group themselves. Right? Well, you know, it was really interesting. Um, when I began this, I was told that I had co complete cooperation and they had all read my Beatles biography and, they knew the way I treated the Beatles and they also knew that I was a musician and that they could talk to me on that level. So it was, it was good news from the get go. And just as I was about to start the, the, the research, uh, me too hit. And once me too hit, uh, they were told not to talk to anybody. And so I, um, I lost out on my, my best sources uh, fortunately, I had about 70 or 80 hours of uh, Led Zeppelin interviews that had never been heard before. And so I was able to distill them and use them in a way that allowed these guys to narrate, narrate their own story without taking anything out of context. And there's a way of distilling stuff so that you feel um, they're right there with you. And it, 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 I, I wish what I love to have had them. I would have loved to have had them, but um, I understand why they couldn't talk. So am I wrong in thinking? I mean, when I go back and I try to think about what appealed to me most about Led Zeppelin when I was young, I was, you know, in, in the 1970, I was in my early teens, basically. I was about right. 15 or 16. And I had come, there were two strains of things that I really loved at that time was the blues and it was folk. And then it seemed like yeah. Led Zeppelin married them both. And then we were off, 
right? They, they did, yes, absolutely. And, and that's one of the things I really loved about this group, that we think of Led Zeppelin as a progressive or a heavy metal band. But, you know, there they are doing Babe, I'm Gonna Leave You on the first album, a Joan Baez song. I right, mean, right. They, were, they were interested in, you know, Robert and, and Jimmy especially were eclectic. And they were interested in other forms of music. So um, why do we get Led Zeppelin three? Because they wanted to explore the traditional music. And, and that makes them very interesting to someone like me. Oh, yeah, no, it's so interesting because, you know, when you when you listen to groups from that kind of British, the Incredible String Band or, or Pentangle or right. any of those guys, there's a strain of them in it. But then there is real muddy waters and robert johnson absolutely I mean, it's a really beautiful blending i think that's that's one of the reasons why stairway to heaven was just such a such a kind of eye-opening song because it <laughs> had all of that there and if isn't this the like the 50th anniversary yesterday yes absolutely the 50th anniversary of of that song and it, it's actually the day that i promised my wife i would never ever play it again you know they they learned how to homogenize all the best parts of music and and that's why the very first chapter of my book begins in the beginning it was the blues and that's right. where you have to start in any in any discussion of Led Zeppelin. That wonderful meeting of uh, Robert Plant and Jimmy Page. How did they how did they kind of come together? Well, you know, Robert Plant was not Jimmy Page's first choice. It's it's funny. I I always say that Led Zeppelin was put together very much like the Monkees. Uh, you know, Jimmy took he had a sound in his head. And then he went out to look for guys, one from column A, one from column B. Um, Robert, uh, his first choice, of course, was Stevie Winwood. He was never getting anywhere with Stevie Winwood. And then he found a young guy named Terry Reed. Now, I don't know if you know Terry Reed's albums, but if you don't, you should go back and explore them because they're fantastic. Terry Reed was a white kind of blues young kid um singer who toured with the rolling stones uh in the very early days he was their opening act and he was jimmy page's first choice to be to be the vocalist but he had a deal with for a new album and he didn't want to give that up so he referred robert plant mm. um and and robert jimmy went went up to hear him in the midlands where where robert lived the midlands being anything north of the north-south divide, uh, Birmingham and above. And he found Robert in a little teacher's college singing Haight-Ashbury-type songs, Moby Grape stuff and Jefferson Airplane stuff. Jimmy wasn't impressed with the material, but that voice knocked him out of his socks. And he was sure something was wrong with Robert. You know, this guy had to be a head case. He had to be totally unable to work with anybody else because why would anybody else have passed up a voice like that but he met robert it was love at first sight uh he invited him down to his home uh jimmy lived in a houseboat uh, a couple uh, about 40 miles north of london and he and robert went through material and, and they chose the same albums they wanted to do the same kind of stuff uh, Jimmy realized he had a soulmate here, and Robert 
being only 19 at the time, thought, wow, this is my big chance. This guy is impressive. He's a guy who has been in the studio for years on end. He had this fabulous house boat with an incredible studio built into it. And more than that, he had a sassy American girlfriend who Robert couldn't take his eyes off of. Uh, and, and they just decided they could work together and, and they had something to say. And, and boy, uh, you know, 10 years later, they sure did. They had a lot to say. Did Jimmy Page take over the Yardbirds and then bring on Robert Plant? No, he did not. Jimmy joined the Yardbirds with Jeff Beck, of all people. They were right, doing right. guitar players. But uh, when the Yardbirds disbanded, Jimmy found himself with the name. Peter Grant somehow wangled the name of the Yardbirds for Jimmy. So he had to put a band together for them, which he was calling the New Yardbirds. Right. And right. this is when he encountered Robert Plant. Gotcha. Um, so it, this was going to be a fresh start based on a sound that Jimmy had in his head that was unlike any sound we had heard in rock and roll before that he wanted to uh, find a way to get onto record. So you mentioned his name, Peter, Peter Grant. Yep. Talk about the influence of Peter Grant. Well, the... you know, Peter Grant was an old time kind of manager. He had been on the road with Chuck Berry and uh, Gene Vincent um, as the road manager and, uh, and was a thug. Peter was a thug. He was a villain in the classic British sense. He, um, you know, if he didn't like something, he would punch you out. Uh, he grew up with the Cray brothers, who were notorious criminals in the UK. Um, this was the, the crowd that he traveled with. And he was an ex-wrestler. He was close to 400 pounds, uh, very intimidating looking, loved to intimidate people with his looks. But when it came to Led Zeppelin and Jimmy Page, Peter had found his true calling. He realized that he had something bigger than he'd ever had in his life. And he was not only going to protect his investment, he was going to protect these guys. He was going to make sure that he got them paid, unlike Chuck Berry and Gene Vincent, who often got stiffed by uh, promoters. Uh, and he was going to take care of them, be there at their beck and call for the rest of their careers. I don't want to rehash some of this writing because I, of, of the episodes that you have in the book, because I want people to experience it for themselves. But, you know, some of the scenes of, of the early tours of how he stood up for these guys is yeah. so impressive. Yeah, and know. they were in some very scary situations. You know, they've had promoters who pulled guns on them. And Grant would step into the promoter's gun and say, go ahead, pull the trigger. What are you going to do? Shoot me? And they backed down. I mean, you right. know, it was incredible. Yeah. Well, you know, Led Zeppelin, I mean, there, there were very few bands who could, you know, there were the Beatles, there were the Stones who did, you know, big, you know, stadium concerts. And it really yeah. wasn't, you know, I even remember in the, in the early 70s, most of the bands that I saw who were big names, you didn't see them in stadiums. You saw them in, you know, regular auditorium or halls and that right. sort of thing. So the, the question that I have really is, what was it about Led Zeppelin, do you think, which, you know, they've sold, what, as you said earlier, 300 million, million albums, albums yeah. that sort of thing. What was it about Led Zeppelin? 
you know, we talked no, you about know, it, it was, melding it, of everything. Was it a matter of timing as well? It was. It was a matter of the sophistication of the rock music industry. I mean, you know, when the Beatles played Shea Stadium, they dragged their little Vox amps out there with them. You know, I mean, who was going to hear anything from that? By the time we get to Led Zeppelin, we're talking about Marshall Stacks. Uh, and they learned how to make sound big. You didn't crank it up to 10. You cranked it up to 14. The music... You, you not only heard the music, you felt it through your body. And I always like to point out that the Beatles, you know, the Beatles were romantics. They sang songs like Please Please Me and From Me to You and I Want to Hold Your Hand. And, you know, they were post-war bands, post-World War II, with the post-World War II kind of ideology. But Led Zeppelin was also a post-World War band post-Vietnam War band. And so that was interpreting all the aggression that came out of Vietnam and the politics and the everything else. It was a different sound, a different time. The, the music business had gotten bigger. Um, things were just splintering and, and growing. And Led Zeppelin was there, the right place at the right time. Yeah, people don't realize that the 60s really didn't end in 69. It really ended in about 72 or 73, right? You know, we have Altamont in 69, and that was the end of peace and love. And all of a sudden, in 1969, 70, Led Zeppelin arrives, and it's loud, and it's, a, it's brash, and it's, it's in your face. It's not peace and love. It's trying to take over your, your, your body. And right. I was thinking more politically than I was. Yes, musically. you're right. Politically, really, it wasn't until the end of the Vietnam War that the 60s kind of really ended. So that the end of the end of Nixon and the end of Nixon. So right. that so that anger that was the loudness, the anger, because remember, you had MC5, you had a lot of yeah. you, know, you had a lot of bands that were kind of shit kicking bands in terms of loud and raucous yeah. Um, in the 60s and early 70s. But but you're right. The summer of love ended, you know, with Altamont, you know, yes, all of that did. ended. And, you know, it's funny. I mean, it's hard for people who are listening to this, listening to us who are younger, who are, you know, don't have that sense. But there was a real split, right, between, you know, people who are listening to folk, Bob Dylan, you know, that sort of thing. And then people listening to what they thought was heavy metal. Yes, you know, it really wasn't. You could sum it all up in the epigraph of my book. There are two quotes there. One is from John Landau, who right. uh, Bruce Springsteen's later manager, who was a critic for the Boston Phoenix. And he says something to the effect, and I'm going to paraphrase it, that this will end. These guys are greedy. It's rapacious. It's loud music. It doesn't have anything going for it. He was the old school, the old school who wanted to preserve that, you know, rock, that album rock that we got in the 60s, the, the classic boomer stuff. And Jimmy Page's uh, quote that follows John's is, fuck the 60s, we're going to chart the new decade. <laughs> and really, it was like saying, you guys are old hat. We're going to sweep you away. You don't mean anything anymore. Let us show you where this is going. And I just thought, there it is in a nutshell. Beautiful. You, you picked two perfect, perfect <laughs> quotes. It, it sums it all up, I think. 
What what do you think rock music would have been like without Led Zeppelin if they hadn't come along? Oh, I oh. think I think other groups were waiting in the wings. Look, you know, they were in um, when John and Robert were were playing weekends with any band that would take them up in the Midlands. There were bands like Black Sabbath waiting in the wings and Rush and, uh, you know, bands who had uh, volume and aggression in their sights. It would have happened sooner or later. It's just that Led Zeppelin beat him to the punch. And, and Led Zeppelin was a lot more artistic and a lot more, uh, their music was crafted in different ways than the, those other bands that, that followed them. So we talked about Robert Plant and Jimmy Page. Yep. Um, when did John Bonham, how did he come, come on board? Well, and it was through Plant, you know. It, Plant said to Jimmy, hey, you know, if you like me, you should hear my pal. <laughs> and, you know, Jimmy, Jimmy went down to see Robert. Robert was playing, uh, excuse me, Bonzo. Uh, Bonzo was playing with a, a folky named Tim Rose. Um, who uh, was doing a show outside of London and Jimmy walked in just out of courtesy to Robert because he had other drummers in mind uh, and really saw the future right there. He just couldn't believe what he was hearing. This guy was incredible. Up in the Midlands when they played, a lot of the places, uh, a lot of the pubs and the um, the ballrooms that they played in had a stoplight system. And the stoplight was um, the noise level. If it was green, you could, you know, you were fine. If it was yellow, the promoters were on your back. Turn it down, turn it down. If it was red, they pulled the plug. Bonham would go in and play the opening notes of any song and it would go right to red and they'd pull the plug. That's <laughs> so, yeah, so they, they had a... When Jimmy heard that, he knew he had found his drummer, and and uh, that's how uh, Bonzo came aboard. And and John John Paul Jones, John Paul Jones, Jimmy knew from being a session musician. Um, John Paul Jones, like Jimmy, played on everything in the early days, the early recordings. One day he might be playing on a Donovan record. On another day, on a Tom Jones record. Mm. One day, Jimmy and John Paul found themselves playing backup on Shirley Bassey's recording of Goldfinger. I mean, these guys could do anything. They did commercials. And Glenn Johns told me that when he heard that John Paul Jones was going to be in the band, he knew that that band had it made because he felt that John Paul Jones was a musical genius, that he could play anything. And he knew that Jimmy was picking the right guys. The other thing I loved about your book was the detail with which you explained and you you documented the actual recording of some of the songs that have become, you know, iconic days. Bless, bless you, Mitchell. Thank you for no, saying no, that. No, no, it's really very true. Yeah. I mean, I just, you know, I felt like I was that that you know kind of uh, a fly on the wall watching all of this, all of this happen. Since it's the fiftieth anniversary of Stairway, talk mm. a little bit about how that came to be. Well, the guys were camped out at a place called Headley Grange. Headley Grange was this old dilapidated mansion uh, in the north. Uh, in the north, And Jimmy liked it because it was cheap. Jimmy was a notorious cheapskate. Uh, it was damp. The guys froze in there. But it had great sound. Uh, so on two successive nights, they were sitting around. Uh, the first night, 
it was only Jimmy and John Paul. And Jimmy had these riffs that he had written that didn't really connect, but he wanted to knit them together in what he thought would be one musical orgasm. <laughs> That's the way he described it. Kind of like Gatadamaron, you know, uh, and, and he didn't quite know where to put it. So the first night he was sitting with John Paul around a fire and John Paul picked up a recorder and started playing along to Jimmy. And there was the beginning of their musical orgasm. The next night, Jimmy had John Paul take Bonzo out to dinner and they were um, sitting around the fireplace, just Robert and Jimmy and Robert started writing just he started scratching out a lyric he doesn't know where it came from there's a woman who's sure all that glitters is gold and she's buying a stairway to heaven and he looked at it and he went stairway to heaven huh where did that come from mm. and he just he couldn't control himself it just poured out now does any of it make sense not a word of it uh i mean you know when i talked to dylan dylan was absolutely wanted me to know that don't dig into his lyrics too much. Sometimes it's just the poetry that needs to be there. And if you, I mean, if you look at Stairway to Heaven and try to make any sense of that, you know, you'll, you'll be committed after a few minutes. But, um, but Robert found phrases and words that kind of fit the music. Uh, and he scratched half of it out that night. He scratched the rest of it out the next day when they were in a recording studio in London. And it all just came like in 15 minutes, the whole damn song. <laughs> Did they work with any one particular musical engineer? Did they work with a number of them? You know, people well, the, who at were the, the beginning, board? they worked with Glyn Johns. Uh, Lynn Johns was who they worked with. Well, at just beginning. at the at the beginning, because he was a friend of Jimmy's. He gave Jimmy his right. start as a session musician and they were boyhood buddies. But Glenn was supposed to be the producer of that album and had a handshake deal with Peter Grant uh, as a producer. And of course, when it push came to shove at the end, they screwed him out of that, not mm. only out of the credit, but many millions of dollars. So who works on their next albums? Andy Johns, Glenn's brother. Um, and they did a couple albums with Andy and uh, George Chiance. And uh, they didn't really work with the same producer all the time because Jimmy was tough to work with. I mean, Jimmy, Jimmy knew what he wanted and he took over the board and he really thought he, he his whole belief was that producers just push buttons on and off, turn the sound up to eight turn the sound down to four. Mm. That's all he thought producers did. Kind of the way that writers feel about their editors. <laughs> you won't tell Scott that at no, all. No, don't tell that. Don't tell him. <laughs> so from there, I mean, you know, Led Zeppelin were the, the big superstars in the 70s. And of course, all of the stories that followed them, right? So talk a little bit about, paint a picture, a word picture of just what it was like to be a Led Zeppelin band member and traveling on these tours. What were those tours like? Well, I can just tell you in, in two words, they were golden gods. Um, but truthfully, those tours were brutal. Um, I know that from being on the road because after eight years, I had to get off the road. You don't know where you are anymore. What city are you in? Who are you with? It just, it makes no sense. 
they toured in America all the time because they weren't selling records in the UK. Uh, their audiences were here. The stadiums were here. The big arenas were here in the States. So they were always here um, in a hotel room every night with sycophants waiting at the doors, uh, with drug dealers getting free passes into their rooms, with girls, you know, paying off the elevator operators to get up to their rooms with hangers on, with the radio people, with the record uh, company guys banging at their door, demanding their time, and then getting on stage and having to do a show where your adrenaline takes you through the roof, and then afterwards having to fight your way through you know, all the people who want, needed to talk to you, who needed to take you somewhere to do something with you to, it, it was brutal. I mean, and, and so we've, we've heard a lot about bad behavior from Led Zeppelin. I, I don't condone it, but I, I came to understand it in a way because I think at a certain point, these guys lost touch with reality. I mean, how can you not when 50,000 people are chanting your name every night in the stadium and you're being treated like golden gods, it's tough to put things in perspective. We're not talking about guys who, you know, went to college and were 35 years old and, uh, you know, had had a lot of upbringing where they could put things into perspective. These were guys who were in their early 20s and had been doing this since they were 14 and 15. And so... They were going on autopilot and it was tough for them. It, it's very tough. I've seen it happen. It, it's, it, it's, it's out of control. Yeah. And in a very strange way, I mean, they kind of survived for a long time for a band of that, you know, during that period without, they did. you know, I mean, I know that Bonham unfortunately died, but it didn't seem like it was drug abuse or maybe it was. It oh was, no, it was. It, it was. Look, John, but, he, but he also had anxiety issues at the same time, deep anxiety issues, right? He did. And he was an alcoholic. There is no doubt about that. Right. So it was he a drug to excess. It was kind of a cocktail of all kinds of stuff. Yes. And you have to you have to look at him. I mean, here was a guy who, you know, got, got married at the age of 16 because he had to and, um, you know, didn't have much of an education whatsoever and was thrown into the spotlight and had to deal with it. Um, it's a lot to put on your shoulders, especially if you have anxiety issues and, and, and really don't know how to deal with any of this. I mean, it's not like anybody schools you in it to tell you, oh, you know, when this happens, then you should react another certain way. Talk a little bit about how that shut the band down, how the band at that point disbanded it and, and why. Oh, well, I mean, it, it was coming to a head. Look, uh, Robert had been in a plane in a uh, car accident that not only almost took his wife but really his wife was declared dead at one point and only had to be resuscitated on a on a on an operating table uh, and then his son died tragically uh, and he was starting to really deal with issues of mortality and what the res his responsibility in all of this was and it was confusing to him and then his closest buddy, John Bonham, dies of a alcohol and drug highball uh, combination. And so Robert was out. He had, he had had it anyway. 
he was not friends with Jimmy Page. None of the band were friends. Mm -hmm. uh, they never socialized with each other. Um, Robert was a very smart guy. He wanted more out of life. He thought Jimmy was irresponsible. He, um, you know, Jimmy was really fighting heroin addiction. He wasn't showing up for any of the recording sessions. Um, there were nights he played where Robert stood at the side of the stage and just had no idea where Jimmy was going or what he was doing with things. Robert was on his way out of this band. Uh, and, and Bonzo's death just turned the faucet off. He, he, had, he had had it. And so that band was heading towards a breakup, I, I think, anyway. But once John died, uh, Robert would never play again. And the truth of the matter is, he had sung Stairway to Heaven one too many times. <laughs> he did not want to sing that damn song that makes one perfect more time. sense, doesn't right. it? Right. Absolutely. Really perfect sense. Tell me how what other musicians felt about Led Zeppelin and who who do we have to thank today for because of Led Zeppelin? You know, it's really curious because guys like George Harrison and Mick Jagger heard early, you know, early test pressings of that first album. And they told Glenn Johns he was nuts. They didn't hear it at all. Um, but but plenty of people did. And look, they ushered in one band after the next. I mean, and not only loud bands. I mean, you know, Dire Straits was really influenced by Led Zeppelin. I have friends who are in a band called the Ex-Ambassadors. They're young boys in their 30s now who are terrific. They think Led Zeppelin was you know, the underpinnings of all of their influence. So, you know, there were a lot of, and, and guys like Stevie Winwood would show up, Pete Townsend would show up at their concerts, Keith Moon all the time. They were really, uh, there were a lot of people who did like Led Zeppelin of note. I mean, you know, Jeff Beck too, and Rod Stewart who sang with Jeff Beck in the early days and was part of that whole gang. Did Jimmy and, and these guys, when they came to the States, did they meet up with any of their old blues guys that they that they really followed and loved? They did, especially when they got to Chicago. Um, they they went to all the clubs in the south side of Chicago. In fact, there was one night when they were taken to see Bobby Blue Bland, and he just referred to Led Zeppelin as Mr. Led. <laughs> he didn't know. <laughs> but they actually got up and played with these guys. And, and you know, I mean, look, you know, there's a great scene in the book where there's an, Jimmy and, and Keith Richards go to see Willie Dixon and some of the early blues people in Manchester. And one of my friends who was sitting there, he said, he sat and watched the show and on one side of him was Jimmy Page, on the other side of him was Keith Richards and they had their mouths dropped open on their knees. They couldn't believe here were these blues guys, T-Bone Walker and Willie Dixon and Shaky Jake on harmonica and, some, and, and John Lee Hooker and some of the greats, some of the greats. So, so let's talk about you, Bob. Where does, uh -huh. this, love, where does this love of music come from? Wow. Uh, I, you know, when I was a kid, I saw Elvis Presley when I was about six or seven. And I knew I wanted to be that guy. <laughs> you know, I mean, it was Elvis. He, he, he did it to me. But um, I was a folky when I was um, 
later on. And, and you know, the night the Beatles were on Ed Sullivan, I went out to the school the next, I was 13 and I went out to, to the bus stop to get the, the school bus the next day. And there was every guy who was in my class with their hair combed down like the Beatles, except one. Right. There was one obnoxious kid who said, this band, the Beatles, they're nothing. They'll disappear in six months. That obnoxious kid was me. <laughs> I was standing up for Joan Baez and Bob Dylan, and they kicked my ass, those, those kids. Funny. So uh, that's where I come from. Did you but, grow up in the city? Did you grow up in New York City? No, or? I grew up in, in Reading, Pennsylvania, uh, and would go into Philadelphia uh, once I was able to drive every week so that I could not only listen to bands that were there, but also... Um, uh, take guitar lessons with the finest players and hit all the clubs. And one night I took uh, another girl in my class and we went to see Joni Mitchell at, at a place called the Second Fret. And afterwards we walked up the stairs to her dressing room, nobody else there, knocked on her door. She invited us in and she sat down and said, let me play you the song I'm working on. And she played us both sides now. Wow. wow we were like what, little what kids. I mean, how can you not have grow up and be, you know, uh, involved in music with experiences like that? Well, you know, the world, the musical world was a bit like that back then. You could, it was. You know, it was the coffee houses. It was the small venues. People were very accessible. It was a very different, very different world. Now, did you have older brothers and sisters who introduced you to that music? No, or I had you a... found your way to folk music all on your own. No, I had a cousin, uh, an older cousin, much older than me, who had a, a little Martin guitar. And she begged my parents to put a guitar in my hand. I was taking piano lessons. I was miserable. My teacher used to put her head on the piano during my lessons and bang her fist on it going, no, 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 get me out of here. Uh, uh, my sentiment, exactly. Thank you. <laughs> but um, my cousin got a guitar into my hands and I learned very quickly and played in bands all through high school and college. And, you know, then I, I was about to go to medical. I was trying to be a, a doctor and my parents put me on a bus to New York City saying, you don't want this. You want to be in New York. Go to New York. Just take a weekend there and uh, and look around and i got off the bus at the port authority and by the time i got to the, the curb to get a cab i knew i was never going back it's pretty amazing i mean your parents may be the only parents in the universe <laughs> jewish parents right Jewish yes. parents who talk their kids out of going to med school <laughs> right exactly that is great so you so then you just soaked up the whole world in new york city now you then got involved in the music business side as well, right? You were I with, did. I got a job. Seen, Elton John, all of that. Well, I, I got a job as a gopher for a guy named Wes Farrell, who was um, doing the Partridge family and Tony Orlando and Dawn and acts like that. And I was his messenger boy. Uh, but I got promoted up through the ranks very quickly. And one night I was sitting in the office uh, after dark, it was after the office was closed with two guys who wrote the music for the Partridge family, you know, doesn't somebody want to be wanted and junk like that. Um, and they, they came down and got me out of the office and they said, you got to come up here and hear this kid. He kind of, he got up in our offices somewhere. I don't know how, but he's, he's got a guitar. You got to hear him. And sitting in the waiting room 
was this little scrawny guy from New Jersey, and his name uh, was Bruce Springsteen. And we quit our jobs the next day. <laughs> I am sure you did. It was great. Is, yeah. That is pretty amazing. All right. So where did the pivot to writing come from? Or how did that start? Yeah. Well, you know, I was on the road with Bruce and Elton for eight years. Um, at the end of those eight years, I didn't know where I was. It's what we, what we were talking about with Led Zeppelin. I didn't have a home. I didn't have friends. I was in New York, but, you know, I mean, I was sleeping on couches. And I just thought, I can't do this. Um, I could self-destruct this way. I need something more than this. And I went to Elton one night, the, the night, that, the last night that John Lennon ever appeared on a stage. He played Madison Square Garden with Elton. And there was a big party afterwards. And I went up to them and I said, that's it for me, my last day. And they said, well, what are you going to do? They figured I was going out with Peter Frampton or something. I said, no, nothing, no idea, don't know. Um, and so what you do after you've been on the road in the craziness for eight years with rock and rollers is you want to lock yourself in a room with nothing but a piece of paper. <laughs> and I decided to teach myself how to write. And that's exactly wow. what happened. Uh, I taught a class at the new school in New York called the making of superstars. And basically what I did was I invited uh, rock and rollers and people from the music industry every week uh, to have me interview them in front of a class of 300 students. And so at the end of two years of that, I had all these wonderful interviews and I put them in a book that I sold called The Making of Superstars. And that's the way I got my foot in the door. Um, and once that happened, I realized that um, I, I could start to write narrative, uh, narrative nonfiction. And, and it went on from there. Uh, and, and your career, I mean, I mean, your Beatles book is the classic Beatles book. Oh, thank you. But then you wrote a book on Ronald Reagan. You wrote a book on <laughs> Julia Child. Were, yes. th were these interests of yours or were these proposals that editors made to you? They were interests of mine. Uh, Julia Child, I actually knew. I met her uh, while I was a journalist and realized that she had the most remarkable life kind of a, you know, a life like you'd hear Eleanor Roosevelt had. I mean, bigger than life, just changed the way we live. Um, by the way, uh, the documentary based on my book, Deary, by, uh, about Julia Child is opening this week. It's called Ju Julia, directed by the two women who directed RBJ. So that oh, should be wow. I can't something wait. to look forward to. But, you know, you could draw a straight line and you don't think you can through the Beatles, Julia Child, Ronald Reagan, and uh, Led Zeppelin. And here's how. Uh, all of my, I, I have two qualities that I look for in any subject that I write about. Number one is that they're beloved. And number two, and this is the hardest one, is that they change the culture. It's the only way that I can sink my teeth into a book for f five or six years. You have to have changed the culture in a big way. The Beatles, of course, did. Julia Child did. I never voted for a Republican in my entire life. And when my wife said, what about Ronald Reagan? I went, no, no way. And she said, you know, he was beloved and he changed the culture. And you should really look into this. <laughs> and it was a fantastic project. I mean, I, I, to be a presidential biographer really was... Um, just beyond my dreams. And when Led Zeppelin came around, I felt the same way. They were beloved by many, many young kids, and they shortchanged the culture. And I, I felt that 
this really fit nicely into my oeuvre that I could take this on. Well, Bob, you also are, are a man of many projects. I know that you've been involved in, in film and other things as well. What is your next project? What's coming oh, up? Oh, Mitchell, I'm glad you're sitting down because uh, your buddy Bob here is going to be the Rolling Stones biographer. I'm already off and running with material that no one has ever seen before or ever heard. And uh, it's, it's going to take, you know, five or six years, but I'm really excited. That is, congratulations, Bob. Yeah, thank you. Are you going to be traveling with them on this tour? No, I'm, 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 I'm still on the COVID watch, to tell you the truth. Yeah, I'm that's true. not taking any chances. But, you know, I've seen them many times. And uh, uh, I, I've been to the UK in the last month or two. And uh, people are coming out of the woodwork to talk to me. So it's, it's going to be great. I'm looking forward to it. Well, I wish you the, the best of luck on that. I can't wait as a bookseller yeah. and a reader to read and also to be selling it. Oh, you, is there a little section of this that you might want to read? At you all? bet. I'd love to. I would yeah. love to. It'd only take a minute or two. Sure. Okay. It's, it's one of my favorite sections in the book. Uh, here you go. Um, Monday, August 12th, 1968. It was a sweltering summer day. The swampy air felt as thick as porridge, especially in London's Chinatown, whose narrow streets and ancient squat buildings seemed to press in on the humidity and, and intensify the heat. Peter Grant, the manager, had answered an ad in Melody Maker for a rehearsal room below a record store at 39 Girard Street, which was no bigger than a large closet, making it hotter still. How the four musicians managed to wedge themselves in there was anyone's guess, what with the wall-to-wall -wall amplifiers and John Bonham's drums. There was a space for the door and that was it, John Paul Jones recalled. The equipment was ragged, second rate. The acoustics, terrible. For a brief moment, the whole affair seemed ludicrous, doomed. The Midlands contingent hadn't even met John Paul before. They'd been introduced somewhat awkwardly only minutes earlier. There was no time to get comfortable, to bond, to feel each other out. How were they expected to rehearse a set of songs? I was absolutely convinced that all that was needed was for all of us to get into a room, Jimmy Page said. He had a sound in his head that he knew would inspire, would make them feel as though they were onto something new and amazing. It was nothing that they'd ever really played before, but how to start? Well, we're all here, he said. What are we going to play? After some shuffling around and shoulder shrugging, Jimmy suggested the old Johnny Burnett standby train kept to rolling and asked John Paul if he knew it. It's easy, he said, just G to A. Without any more discussion, Jimmy counted it out. Two, three, four. The room just exploded, John Paul recalled. It was like a dam had broken with music surging out. Far too loud, Jimmy thought, but so fantastic. All that power. It just locked together like something that was pretty scary, but had to be. It turned the song's jaunty rockabilly groove into something fierce and feral. And Robert, at his most intense, sold it with his naked cat howl. It kept moving forward, faster, fiercer, and seamless, as though everyone knew his part and how to knit it together. Shit, Jimmy hooted, what was that? Robert had an idea. 
there was nothing pretty about it. And in his view, it was just an unleashing of energy. The sound was so great, he thought. Very, very, very exciting and very challenging. I could feel that something was happening within myself and to everyone else in the room. It felt like we just found something that we had to be very careful with or we might lose it. John Paul was sold as well. Right, we're on, he knew. This is it. This is going to work. Jimmy Page, perhaps more than anyone, was aware of protecting their interests. The sound they had made was exactly what he'd fantasized for his band. It was there immediately, he said. It was like a thunderbolt, a lightning flash. It was time to close ranks. You've written another masterpiece, Led Zeppelin, uh, a biography. Bob Spitz has been my guest on The Literary Life. Bob, I could talk to you forever. And <laughs> one day, I'd love to you know, come on down to Miami. We'll have a cup of coffee and... I'd love to hear more stories from you. I'll be there one day, Mitchell. You'll see. I'll knock on your door. All right. Thank you so very much. My pleasure. Take care. <laughs>